couple things before we get started that I want to point out before we start this, this talk this morning, this new series. One is, uh, obviously Jesus is the one who gets all the honor and the glory and the praise this morning, but we want to send a special thank you to a group of people who have been cleaning our, our parking lot for the last couple of weeks. So give those who have been running our snow plows a hand. They have... Uh, They've had quite the job the last few weeks, and so we're grateful for them. And then I don't know if this person's in the room or not, but Pastor Eric and Becky Fairhurst are back in town. And so there they are, they're right over here. So welcome, Pastor Eric and Becky back. We're glad that they were able to get away and spend some time away on sabbatical and looking forward to seeing how God's going to continue to bless their ministry as they continue to serve here at West Hill. Well, we are starting a brand new series this morning called Followers. And if you have a Bible, find 2 John. We're going to be in the book of 2 John for the next few weeks, uh, working through a series on what it looks like and what it looks like. And, and if you've been with us for any amount of time, the last several months or the last month specifically, we've been looking at the church in Acts. And the churches that are represented there, the churches in, in Galilee and Samaria and Judea and in Jerusalem. And we've been looking at characteristics of the early church, what they did, who they were, what they were about, all things church. And we've just been looking at what that looked like. And it was a far cry from what we may imagine it looked like based on how we do church today. And of course, churches change with culture, churches change over time, but there are some markers that, that you see as you read the descriptions of these churches that are in our New Testament. And so we looked at the church there in Acts chapter 9 for five weeks. We looked at different markers of that church. And then we're going to look at how those things continued, those teachings they continued, those principles, those commands that we have been looking at for the last five weeks. They didn't stop. The purpose for the church, it continued and it continues today. And so here in 2 John, there's a lot going on in these, this very short book. It doesn't even have chapters. It is so short. But it is a wonderful book. It is a wonderful challenge for us today here in 2022. There are several things going on in culture similar to what we discussed in our previous series and how it's done. This specific group of people, they were dealing with false teaching and deceivers that were among the, the early church. And so that was something that they were dealing with. And when there's false teaching, as we noticed in weeks one and two of how it's done, that when there, when there are people who are teaching false things, that causes division and it causes confusion. And so general, the general theme for this entire book is the word truth, knowing truth, loving the truth. And so that's what this series is all about. A little bit of context as we continue to move through this. The, the book starts by, by uh, identifying that the elder is writing to the elect lady. Now we're going to cover those two things real quick before we jump into the rest of this sermon. Now there's a lot of debate on the author of 2 John. I know that sounds strange because the title is 2 John, but there is quite a bit of debate 
on whether or not John wrote this letter. But the majority of scholars do believe that 2 John was written by John. Now, there are some interesting things that scholars believe. Maybe you've never heard this. It's not widely discussed. But many believe that 2 and 3 John were actually the last two books of the Bible that were written, not Revelation. Many scholars believe that John, who was exiled to Patmos, he was released from the island of Patmos, and then he wrote these two letters. And so we have 2 and 3 John. Sometime this week, if you want to study that a little deeper, you can. It's not the most riveting, so if you like history, you'll love it. If you don't, don't worry about it. But it's written by the elder, and I believe that was John. And uh, there are also some debate and some division over the audience of this letter. Because it says, from the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, this can go two ways. This could either be a mother and her children, or it could be the church and the body of Christ that make up the church. And so one of the reasons why I believe that this is the church that's being referenced is because of the word elect. Election is not an individual thing, it is a corporate thing. The church is the elect. The body, the corporate body of the church are those who are the elect. They, are, they have a destination, an eternal destination that is in heaven. Now that discussion is for an entirely different sermon and sermon series, but that's why I tend to lean in the direction that this is a letter that is written to the church. But either way, it applies to all believers, and you can apply it wherever you land in whatever perspective that you have. Because here's the simple truth. We belong to Jesus, and we are his, and he loves us, and he cares about the church, and that includes you, that includes me, and that includes those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So don't let that slip by you, because every person here needs to hear that God loves us, that Jesus came and he died for us, and that he is with us in all things and in all circumstances. We can't forget that. This little book here in 2 John, it contains less than 250 Greek words, yet it is packed full of tremendous encouragement and challenge for us today here in Worcester. Now, I don't want to ask you to raise your hand as I ask this question. I want you to just think internally is do, how many of you have authority issues? Maybe the, the issue is submitting to authority. So I won't ask you to raise your hand, but just kind of raise your hand in your own mind. Do you like being told what to do? And I think the majority of us would say, no, we don't like being told what to do. None of us enjoy it. I know I don't necessarily enjoy being told what to do. I really didn't love being told what to do when I was a child and when I was a teenager. Because I was smarter and I could do it better. It's just true. It's just true. We all, everybody's been a teenager, you know it. And so we, we just, we are born as sinners with this, with this issue to like authority. 
Now, apparently, this is an actual diagnosis in our culture, by the way, people who have authority issues. So everybody's diagnosed with authority issues, I guess. But it's actually, it's a big issue. But not many people relish the idea of submission. Yet, we all submit to someone or something. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know if you're 100% submitted to the authority of God and his word. Maybe it's, maybe it's a boss at where you work. It could be a board that's over a committee. It's a teacher in every classroom. It's a pastor of every church. It's a doctor in every surgery. It's, it's a manager on every shift. There's always someone who is in authority. Every family has someone who is in charge. Authority and submission are part of all of our lives. Now, when it comes to God having authority over us, we all say, yes, we love it, we like it, we want him to be the source of authority in our lives, but do we truly submit ourselves to his authority? But believers are expected they're expected to, committed to, and honored to accept and follow God's truth. It's, it's an honor to be able to submit ourselves to him. Now, this is a difficult concept, obviously, in our, in our culture today, when we're told that relative truth is whatever we want that truth to be. But someone has to determine truth. I can't define truth or determine truth, and you can't either. Somebody has to set the table. Somebody has to raise the bar, set the mark, whatever, however you wanna look at it. Somebody has to determine what truth is. And so as Christians, as Christ followers, we, we the most, the majority of us, we believe that God is the determiner of truth. And so we use our God-given free will, and he allows us to, to submit or not submit to his authority. Whether that's in rejecting the gospel, as we see in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in Romans 1, or rejecting any other individual concept that we find in Scripture, or even any boundaries or parameters for living this life. But we can never say that we get to determine truth because we are submitting our hearts and minds to something or someone. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, I want you to ask yourself this question, do I submit to the truth? Do I submit to the truth. And so our first section here in 2 John, we're going to read the, the first three verses of 2 John. And 2 John says this, it says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. I want you to take a moment, though, and I want you to look for a repeating word that shows up here. I've already given it to you, by the way. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, 
mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. Did you notice what word popped up there in the first three verses? Four times the word truth shows up. This word for truth in the original language is, is the word aletheia. Our young adults ministry is, is named after this Greek word. This Greek word really, when you boil it down, it means that it's truth under any matter. In its simplest form, it just means reality. That truth is reality. It is truth under any matter. Under any circumstance, that's what truth means. And it's not something that changes with circumstance. This aletheia, this truth, it is not, it is not something that you get to redefine. It is not something that we get to say we're uncomfortable with, so we're going to come up with our own reality. We don't have that kind of power. There's truth, and then there are false truths. But these opening verses here in 2 John, they, they connect to a lot of what we talked about in the previous series. I've already talked a little bit about that. But these followers of Jesus, they must acknowledge the simple truth. Our first focus point this morning is simple, that Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. He is the only way to heaven. So Jesus, as he says in John 14, he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus alone is the truth. He always has been. He always will be. There can be no other way. Now, this is what gets Christians in a lot of trouble. Because it seems arrogant, it seems cocky for us to declare uh, among all the other religions and all the other ideas that are present in this world that we follow the only truth. That Jesus is the truth. That there is no other way to heaven. That there is no other person that can get us to heaven. There is no process. There's no amount of money. There's no good life that you could live that could get you to heaven. Jesus himself declares for us that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Jesus was real. He walked this earth. He died on a cross for the sins of the world, and he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. We just celebrated a picture of that just a moment ago in baptism, where we, where we look at the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who made a way for us to be given new life, to be raised from death and darkness. So Jesus is truth, and we know this. His word is truth. You see, followers of Jesus, they, we go to God's word to find truth no matter what we encounter, no matter 
the situation, no matter what the claim may be, the theory, whatever it is, we trust that his word is truth. We can always go to the Bible to see what God says about whatever thing it is that we're looking for. The word keeps us steady. The word keeps us secure through the changing culture. We see so many families, so many lives unraveling at rapid pace. Because we think there's another truth. We think there's another way. We're always looking for the next step, the next system, the next process. Where we actually do have all that we need in his word. And followers of Christ have to make a decision at some point along the way on whether or not we are going to willingly submit to God's word as the authority in our lives. Because it's what he says that matters, and we build our lives on his statutes, on his values, and on his commands. John 17 clearly communicates that he sanctifies us by the truth, and his word is truth. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, all of my words are true. And I would encourage you to write down Psalm 19 verses 17 or 7 through 11 and study those on your own and just underline all of the descriptors on what his word does in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. So his, his person, Jesus, is truth. His word is truth. And then we find that his spirit is truth. Now, we studied this a couple of weeks ago, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, that there, is, there are some things that the Spirit does in our hearts and in our minds, in the, in the life of a believer, that he lives with us and he, he works in us. And as we saw two weeks ago, he comforts and he guides and he teaches and he directs and, and he directs us toward God's perfect will. And he intervenes for us. Those three things right there on their own are enough for us. We don't really need anything else than those three things right there. And so if you hear nothing else this morning, if you, if you hear nothing else that I say, hear those three things. Jesus is truth, his word is truth, and his spirit is truth. But his truth is eternal. That's why it's such a beautiful thing to submit our hearts to. His truth is eternal. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 John again. It says... The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Verse 2 is the key section. Because of the truth that abides in us will be with us forever. It never leaves. This truth, it is always in you. It is always in us. No matter what happens, we have access to truth 24-7, dark times, happy times, lowest of low. No matter what's happening, we have access to truth as Christians. If we have submitted our hearts and our, and our wills to him, he will sustain you. 
It continues and it remains. It doesn't end. It doesn't fade away. It is unchanging. God is eternal and so is his truth. It's not just something that we know today. It's not just something that we know. It's something that we can love deeply. It's the challenge that we face with with getting knowledge versus growing in knowledge. We've been talking about that so much over the last six months specifically, that we need to grow in knowledge and not just get more of it. Knowledge is great, but getting it isn't enough. Followers of Jesus love the truth. But why is truth so important? When we've looked at all these churchy things, right? Jesus is truth. His word is truth. His spirit is truth. It is truth is eternal. All things that you would expect to hear from a preacher on a Sunday morning who studies the Bible, and, and it's all things that you would find in, in, in your theology books and, and, the, and the, your, your favorite writers and authors. They all would write those things, and glory, hallelujah, amen, we believe it. But why is truth so important? Have you ever considered that? If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, why is that so important? If his word is truth, why is that so important? Highlighted that just a moment ago. Because we need more Jesus. And we definitely need more Jesus as we live in this world full of false teachings and false truths. The world, I don't know if you've noticed it, is getting more confused. And I'm not highlighting any specific thing that's happening in our culture, but I struggle more now than I did 20 years ago. There's more information at my fingertips now than there ever has been. And I struggle in my Christian life more than I ever have today. You see, for this church in 2 John, It was the attacks on Jesus that was causing so much tension. And one of the things that we have access to that they didn't have access to during this time was the completed copy of his truth, the word of God. And so they had to rely solely on the apostles' teaching. And so the apostles were, I'm sure they were so annoyed with constantly having to talk about who Jesus was and what he did and constantly reminding them that he did come, that he did live a sinless life, that he was the Messiah, that he did pay the price for sin, that he did die on the cross for the sins of the world, and that he did rise again from the dead. I'm sure that it was somewhat exhausting at times, especially when there were a group of really smart people, really educated people, people way more educated than the apostles who were communicating to people that Jesus was not God in the flesh and that he didn't rise from the dead and that if he did rise from the dead, he surely wasn't going to come back for his people. And so that's what this church was encountering. That's what this church was struggling with. This, what this elect lady and her children were struggling with. And for us, it may not be an attack on Christ himself, not yet. But the recipe is mostly the same. But with added ingredients and incorrect definitions and confused theology and twisted worldviews, 
relative truth, and the gods of self. You see, several of the early churches dealt with this attack, and they dealt with the attack of the deity of Christ, his divine nature. False teachers during this time would say that that everyone, that all humans, we are all sons of God just like Jesus. That was one of the things they communicated. And of course, we are made in the image of God, but we are not Jesus. I hope you know that this morning. But we are not Christ. We are not even remotely like Christ. We're called to pursue him. But Jesus was divine. So there was an attack on the divinity of Jesus. They often taught that when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, that he was actually claiming to just be a good person, which would be in complete opposition to his very own words in John 10, where he says that I and the Father are one, which is what got him in trouble anyways, all the time with the Pharisees. His claim to be divine. God in the flesh. You see, everything that we believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus, everything we believe hinges on the deity of Christ. You know that he couldn't be a savior if he was just a man like me. He would be no different than any other blaspheming liar in history who claimed to be God. This whole Christian life is a lie if he wasn't God in the flesh. And if we don't believe that the Bible is God's word to us, then this whole thing falls apart. It all falls apart if you don't believe that God's word is his final word. What parts don't you accept today? That's a good question to ask, by the way. Seems like I'm being harsh, but there are parts that we don't always accept, right? Has the Bible just become some textbook that has some relevant truths that you can pick and choose from, depending on how you feel that day or what you're going through in your life. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have questions. I still have a lot of questions about things that I read in the pages of this book. You can still be confused by the things that we find in this book. That's normal, by the way. But if we can't trust it, all of it, in context, then what we believe about Jesus has absolutely no power. Because if we can't believe what this book says, then we can't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So the challenge this morning and the application this morning is simple. We want you to know the truth. Not just get truth, Not just to hear truth, but we want you to know the truth. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. We know this, but we can say it again and again. It should never get old. The question is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Have you been saved? That starts with the gospel that God created mankind in his image to be in a relationship with him. But mankind sinned in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. They rebelled against God and his command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Sin entered the human race in that moment and sin separated mankind from God. And mankind tried to earn their way back into God's good graces, but how good is good enough? They couldn't do it. So God comes to this earth through the person of Jesus, and he lives the life that we couldn't live, and he pays the price for our sin on the cross of Calvary, and he rises from the dead, and he says that everyone who calls and trusts in me alone can have eternal life, and that life will never end. It starts with the gospel. I've had so many conversations in the last few weeks with people who I believe to be followers of Jesus. And we've been wrestling with this question of, do we truly want to know Jesus for who he truly was and for what he truly did? You see, John 8 says that Jesus, Jesus says that if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So as we navigate all the, all the drama, all the junk in culture, all the twisted theology, all the twisted ideas, when we know truth, truth sets us free. There's freedom in knowing truth. There's freedom in knowing Jesus, and there's freedom in knowing his truth that he's given to us. So do you know Jesus well? Or maybe you put your faith in him, you trusted in him for salvation, and then you just put him on the back burner. And you just save Jesus for when, when you need help. First John 2 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we observe what Jesus did. I've been reading through Matthew lately, and Matthew chapters like 20 through 23 are impressive sections of Matthew. Where Jesus is really laying out what it looks like to follow him. The cost of being a disciple. That there is, there is a cost, there, there is a price that we have to pay when we know Jesus. When we truly know his will. When we truly seek his purpose and his plan for our life. It is going to cost you something. I don't know what that is. But it's going to cost you something. So maybe you've bought into the lies that are being sold by the culture. Are you allowing the world and even your experiences to be your guide? Have you been sucked into wrong teaching because you didn't know what truth is? Because you're not looking to Jesus for truth. Are you surrounding yourself with people who are following the truth? Do the people with whom you spend the majority of your time with, do they point you to truth? We know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that bad company, bad company corrupts good character and it's misleading. So we have to be careful. So we know the truth and then we have to act on the truth. We know truth and then we act on truth. It's not enough. I've mentioned this so many times. I hope it is connected with you. But we can't just be hearers only. We have to be doers. James 1 tells us that, that we have to be doers of the word. We observe his example. We imitate his heart. We look at his example and we follow that example. Ephesians 4, which we looked at four or five weeks ago, 
What we do here is we equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we know truth and we act on truth. So are you acting on truth? Are you putting your faith into action? You see, when we love the truth, when, when you love the truth, you act on it. When I find myself in a position of, man, I am, I am hearing and I'm getting and I'm growing and I'm knowing, then I act on it and I do something with it and I see God do a work in me and in the lives of those around me that only he can do. James says that we're to look intently in those verses as we do the work of the word. But it can't just be head knowledge. It has to be in our hearts. We need to love it and we need to live it. Allow truth to change you. So we need to know the truth, act on the truth, and here's the encouraging part. We can enjoy the truth. Because of truth, verse three says that grace, mercy, and peace exist in us and will remain with us. This truth that we're talking about, this truth of having this relationship with Jesus, knowing his word, knowing that his spirit is actively working inside of us, we can enjoy that. You see, when we love Jesus and we love his truth, when we obey him and we serving him and we serve him with our lives, it will not be burdensome. It's an honor. John 14 says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love them and show myself to them. Here's what we know. Followers of Jesus love the truth. Followers of Jesus love the truth. We must know the truth act on the truth and enjoy the truth. We must enjoy Jesus. If I can encourage you this morning with this, is don't let the world and don't let the enemy trick you just like he did Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't let him trick you into thinking that you would make a better God. That you would make a better Savior. Don't let him trick you because that's what he does. He is a schemer. He is a deceiver. And he loves to get us to think that we are our best bet in this life. Don't let him trick you. Don't let him trick you to think that you're a better decision maker than God. That you're a better destiny determiner. I don't even know if that's a word, but I liked it. The New Testament tells us over and over again that accepting and following the truth of Jesus, it's an obligation, if I may dare say so, and it's an honor for every believer. It's something that we get to do, that we should love, and that we should enjoy. Who better to determine morality and truth than the one who created everything that we see? 
And if he isn't the determiner of truth, who gets to be? That's a real question to wrestle with. If God isn't the one who sets the table for what truth is, who gets to? You? Me? Half of y'all don't even like me, so that's a problem. <laughs> if you're a parent, your kids don't like you. So, I mean, what, who gets to determine truth? The president? Oh, geez. I mean, there, no, there's no hidden, hidden statement there. I'd say that about any president, by the way. The court system? Who gets to determine truth? I'll stick with Jesus, by the way. You see, when we're saved, we surrender our lives to him. He becomes our Lord, our master. We don't like using that word in this culture either. But Jesus Christ is my master. But he's not like most masters. Because this master served me. This master emptied himself out and made himself nothing for me. His sacrifice covers us. And we receive something we don't deserve because he is good. And when we surrender to him, his will should become our own. And we are given an abundance of blessing that we get to carry on throughout our lives. Followers of Jesus love the truth. I have a few questions for you this morning that I'd love for you to ask maybe today as you're around your lunch table. But who is your greatest influence when it comes to truth? Who has the loudest voice in your heart right now? Is it media? Is it an author? Is it an athlete? Is it a teacher? Is it a family member? Is it a pastor? Or is it God's word? Who is the loudest voice? And then do you submit to truth as defined by God himself? Do you submit to truth? Whether it's something that you're confused about, or whether it's something that you're studying, or it's something that you're wrestling with, or maybe it's something that culture is trying to redefine, do you submit to the ultimate authority and the ultimate determiner of truth? Do you, tend, do you intend to submit to what God says about a topic? And then what's a change that you can make to love the truth more? What's one simple change that you can make today to love the truth more? Maybe you just need to know truth. Maybe you just need to submit your heart to the truth. Maybe you need to act on some truth. That you know a ton of it, but you're not acting on it. You're not putting that faith into action. And then simply maybe you just need to find the joy of the Lord in your heart and enjoy the truth. Maybe you need to ask God to help you love him more deeply and not look at his truth as some heavy burden to carry. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
and he doesn't change. Followers of Jesus love the truth. Do you love him? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for who you are. God, I pray that we would never make church just a routine thing. And when we gather together under your name and we sing songs to praise you and to bring you honor and glory, that we would not take that opportunity lightly. That we are standing in the presence of a God who loves and who gives and who serves and does so unconditionally. So God, for those who have put their faith and trust in you, who are your children today, God, I pray that we would know your truth and act on it and enjoy it. Because that's what a real follower would do. And so God, I pray that we would be a people that are following the truth. Because you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. And no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.